Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, it's 10 things about Dr. Benjamin Rush. Dr. Rush was a friend of John Adams and an admirer of Thomas Jefferson. In fact, he reconciled them in 1812 after a quarter century of silence. He also was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and the medical advisor to the Lewis and Clark expedition. Sadly, the one thing Rush did not do was publish his book, Memories of the Revolution. Yes, he, he burned it, unfortunately. We would give anything to have that document. Even John Adams said that it had been a rash act to destroy that memoir. One thing he did do was correspond regularly with Thomas Jefferson about science. Yes, they had a very interesting high intellectual conversation about science and particularly natural history. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss historical events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now, and good day to you, Mr. President. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, you had notable correspondence with many of the Founding Fathers, and one in particular is of interest to me. That would be Dr. Benjamin Rush. You corresponded with him regularly about matters of science. Yes, we were both figures of what's known as the Enlightenment. You know, we were what I think people call projectors or philosophes. We found many, many things interesting. And in the Republic of Letters, in the this sort of loose coalition of like-minded men and some women, we corresponded and traded ideas and suggested books to read and made our own observations, reviewed the books that we were reading and so on. And Dr. Rush and I maintained a very long and very fruitful conversation about science. Although science, you must understand, in my time meant knowledge. It wasn't strictly science as in chemistry and physics. I'm not certain, sir, if you were close friends or casual acquaintances, but he did have a great effect on on you and your relationships later in life. Well, he was friendly with a lot of different people, and one of his closest friends was John Adams. And I think, as everyone knows, Adams and I had a falling out uh, between 1795 and 1801 or so. And when I supplanted Adams as president, uh, he was bitter, and we never saw each other again for the last quarter century of our lives. And we almost certainly would have died without making any attempt to communicate had it not been for Dr. Rush. Rush had a dream. Uh, he said he had an actual dream in which he reconciled the North Pole Adams and the South Pole of the Revolution together, and he then worked at this for more than a year, writing to each one of us, trying to pressure us, to encourage us, to cajole us, even to trick us into a renewed correspondence, and eventually it succeeded. And I can say that I almost certainly would never have written to John Adams had it not been for the intervention of our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Rush. We should all be so fortunate to have such caring and interested friends. Sir, sir, did, did it offer you any satisfaction? I know this is a personal question, but did it offer you any satisfaction to reconcile with Mr. Adams? Yes, very much. I loved Adams. I admired and respected him. He was a, a essential to the American Revolution. We had been very close friends. And as you know, I, I never deliberately broke a friendship. Some friendships broke down, 
but I never myself abandoned anyone who had been my friend, and I was saddened by the split with John Adams. But but such things do happen in life. This was a very volatile period in our domestic politics, the 1790s, and it was a very extraordinary moment in international politics, the French Revolution. And so it's not at all surprising that something like this could happen, but I lamented it. I did not expect the the friendship to recover. When it did, I was pleased, and Mr. Adams and I exchanged about 140 letters, he about three to my one, during the last 14 years of our life, and it, it proved to be a source of enormous satisfaction to him and considerable satisfaction to me. Mr. Rush may have been correct in his dream, you being the South Pole and Mr. Adams being the North, but I suspect there was more that you shared than you differed about. Oh, certainly. You know, we were, to use one of my favorite metaphors, we were uh, rowing together in the small band of brothers who were keeping our ship of state afloat against almost impossible odds. And Rush was an intermediary. So Adams and I, I don't think I'm really the South Pole of the revolution. That certainly would be Patrick Henry or George Washington. But I take his point. Uh, and I was glad that we were able to communicate, Adams and I, because we were we were really wrestling with the meaning of the American project, wrestling with the, the, the implications of the American revolution. And I think that that uh, helped each of us think But it also, I think, as a body of work, helps the American people think about that important era in our history. And the importance of Dr. Rush. I thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome, sir. citizens and welcome to this week's edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week another in our 10 Things series and we're so pleased to welcome back Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky along with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and welcome to you both. This week's subject is Dr. Benjamin Rush and before I turn to the conversation over the two of you I thought I might offer the following. Benjamin Rush was born On December 24th, 1745, he lived to the age of 67, dying of typhus fever on April 19th, 1813. Known as a civic leader in Philadelphia, he was a physician, politician, social reformer, humanitarian, educator, and a Pennsylvania delegate to the Continental Congress. He was an enthusiastic supporter of the American Revolution, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and served as Surgeon General of the Continental Army. Rush is remembered as a leader of the American Enlightenment and an advocate for reforms in medicine and education. He opposed slavery, supported free public schools, sought improved education for women, and a more enlightened penal system. 
As a leading physician of his time, Rush believed that illness was the result of imbalances in the body's physical system and was caused by malfunctions in the brain. He promoted public health by advocating clean environments and stressing the importance of personal and military hygiene. And his study of mental disorder made him one of the founders of American psychiatry. Later in life, when asked for a self-description, Rush said that he, quote, aimed right. On to the 10 things about Dr. Benjamin Rush. When we start with number one, Rush knew everyone and was everywhere. And on this point, Clay, you and I in 2019 uh, spoke with Stephen Fried, the author of Rush, Revolution, Madness, and Benjamin Rush, the visionary doctor who became a founding father. And we talked about how Rush popped up everywhere and sort of being a, a Forrest Gump character. Well, the, the thing about Rush was that although his politics were closer to Jefferson's than to, say, John Adams, he was friendly with all of these people, and he had a way of um, of not taking these disagreements into some sort of zone of hostility or disrespect, that he was able to sort of bridge across some of the political fissures of the time. And, of course, the most famous of these was uh, his work to help reconcile John Adams and Thomas Jefferson in 1812, but he was likable and he, and he was admirable and he apparently didn't wear his politics on his sleeve because he wasn't strident. You know, he was a feminist, he was an abolitionist, um, but he he managed to maintain cordiality with almost everyone. That's at least my sense, Lindsay. What's yours? I think the one exception might be Alexander Hamilton, who had a knack for not being able to get along with people. So that is sort of fitting. Um, but I think you're right. When I, I was reading this Rush book that you guys talked about, um, and you know, Stephen Fried says that he was the founder that knew too much. He had a knack for getting gossip from people, for asking questions and getting people to open up in conversation. And in an era when, you know, the only way to correspond if you weren't with someone was to put things in writing, that could potentially be pretty dangerous if you know, depending on how honest people actually were. So many of the the framers that he spoke with and their families sometimes asked him to burn things later because they felt that the information that they had shared willingly at the time would then be embarrassing. And so he really did have this incredible ability to get almost everyone to warm up to him, even though he doesn't come across as like a vanilla character. He he was full of personality, but somehow he was able to endear himself to so many people. Agreed. So Hamilton's always sort of the outlier in these conversations because of his enormous personality um, and his, um, you know, he did not suffer those that he didn't appreciate. Um, he made no effort to conciliate those that he found um, offensive to his own vision or to his own work. But, you know, I, I find it so interesting that Rush could be things that Jefferson was not, an abolitionist. In fact, an ardent one, a feminist, when Jefferson is really just a garden variety, 18th century male chauvinist at heart, and maybe even a misogynist in some respects. Um, this, there's something about Rush that, that Jefferson could admire in spite of the differences that were clear. I mean, Rush certainly didn't make a secret of, of his views. And 
Rush was able to, uh, to maintain a really good friendship with Adams, which is harder. It's harder to maintain a friendship with Adams than with Jefferson because Jefferson's going to just withdraw and talk about the weather or talk about planets or talk about the West. But Adams never saw a, a provocation that he didn't wrestle to the ground. That's true. He definitely, and there were moments in their correspondence when Adams would get, you know, a bone in his teeth and, or a bone in his jaw, I can never remember how to say that phrase, and just wouldn't let it go. Craw. And would, thank you. His craw. His craw. I have a knack for uh, butchering these idioms. Um, and he, he, he wouldn't let it go. He kept coming back to it in letters. And I think in some ways that reflects Rush's personality, he had so many interests and he had so many things that he could talk about and wanted to talk about and wanted to exchange ideas on that it made it possible to have relationships with people like Adams and Jefferson at the same time. Point number two is Rush's role in shaping the revolution through early advice to John Adams. And Lindsay, this was one of your points. Yes. So John Adams, after his presidency, so, you know, we have to obviously take this with a grain of salt because this is many decades after the start of the revolution. But he at one point wrote, Mr. Washington would never have commanded our armies, nor Mr. Jefferson have been the author of the Declaration of Independence. This conversation, meaning a conversation he had had with Rush and the principles, facts and motives suggested in it gave a color, complexion and character to the whole policy of the United States. And Adams in this in this quote is referring to a conversation he had with Rush on his way to Philadelphia. Rush had met the Massachusetts delegation as they were coming into Philadelphia. And Rush had found a way to get into Adams' carriage and basically encouraged him to let Virginia take the lead with pushing for independence and new measures and reminding Adams that some of the Massachusetts delegates were really kind of seen as rabble-rousers, which they were. Um, and so it was important to let Virginia feel like they were leading the way. And to be sure, Adams, whether or not he took that advice because Rush was the one suggesting it or because it had occurred to him in his own way or because other people commented that this was good sense, did in fact try and push Virginia to the forefront. So Washington was nominated as the commander in chief. Jefferson was encouraged to be the initial writer of the Declaration of Independence. And this was a very important strategic political choice. And and, and that letter makes it clear because Adams doesn't praise people that don't deserve praise in his mind. Correct. That he he must have believed that it was that conversation with Rush which made him realize that keeping Virginia in the mix was so important. And from a Jeffersonian point of view, Jefferson would say that that Washington became commander-in-chief and he, Jefferson, wrote the Declaration of Independence because there was a fear that the revolution was being seen as a regional event, something in the Bay Colony in Boston, Massachusetts, a bunch of hotheads in New England. And Adams wisely wanted to nationalize the revolution and bring in the most populous and the wealthiest state, uh, both with Jefferson and Washington. I had never heard this before that uh, that that Rush was was behind this, but that's a, such a typical Adams letter, as you know, Lindsay, because he's always saying something, something, something wouldn't have happened if not. He loves that locution. There wouldn't there would you know Washington struck the ground with his trident or Benjamin Franklin did, whichever it was. Washington sprang forth. He loves to say 
something couldn't have happened without X, and, and the X is usually John Adams. <laughs> That's true. But he doesn't get enough credit, so sometimes he's right. But in this case, to your point, he's crediting Rush, which when he's crediting someone else, that should be taken seriously. But but there was some controversy involving Washington and Rush. He did criticize Washington, and and he, and he lost his job as Surgeon General in the Army because of it, because he and Washington disagreed about some medical in, uh, issues, um, which is neither here nor there, but he then began to question Washington's management of the war. And that was um, probably the biggest political mistake of his life. How, how do you read that, Lindsay? Yeah, I think that that's right. I think, you know, Rush, like Adams, he sometimes is hasty in his judgment, especially when he's tired or grouchy or he feels like his sacrifices aren't being properly appreciated. And during the war, he was really making a heroic effort to try and save soldiers from the things that happen off the battlefield, disease, um, lack of hygiene, lack of appropriate shelter and food. But he was sending Washington this advice. And when Washington wasn't replying fast enough, he then got very frustrated. And he started giving credence to the criticism of Washington's leadership that he had heard from people like Horatio Gates and Thomas Conway and sent in, in what is such a weird choice, this unsigned letter to Patrick Henry, who he was not particularly close to. It wasn't like he was trying to, you know, just complain to a buddy. He was he was sending this random unsigned note criticizing Washington to Henry and then found out just a couple of days later that Washington was actually adopting all the changes he wanted. But by that point, the damage was done. Did Rush play any role in Washington's having his troops uh, inoculated for smallpox? Yes, he encouraged Washington to adopt the inoculation, which was something Washington, I think, was already supportive of. But having that medical encouragement was um, important and helped get Congress on board with that choice because it was not without risk at the time. And so that and, and that, I think, was one of the most strategic, important choices they made during the war because smallpox had the potential to decimate the army. One of Russia's breakthroughs as a physician was that he understood the connection between hygiene and cleanliness and disease. And as you know, both of you, this was a time when most people didn't bathe much and uh, hygiene wasn't well understood. Uh, and Rush was, was very certain that staying clean and, and, and you know, bathing from time to time, washing from time to time, making sure your blankets are not infested with fleas that these were critical and that this was a real problem in the in the army. It's, a, it's been a problem in armies throughout history, but he was making the best attempt to prevent disease because once disease happened, the, uh, the rest got pretty savage. I'm so glad the two of you picked Benjamin Rush as this week's subject. I just find this man fascinating. We need to take a short break, but we'll return to this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Our discussion this week with Dr. Lindsay Trevinsky and Clay Jenkinson, 10 things about Dr. Benjamin Rush. And when we took our break, we had mentioned this, this letter, this critical letter, an anonymous letter that Benjamin Rush sent to Governor Patrick Henry. It wasn't signed, but when Washington read it, he recognized the handwriting. And my understanding is, is that Rush later in life expressed regret for this gossip against Washington and and tried to backtrack uh, and get a biographer to remove that quote from a book. He was not happy with himself. Yeah, it was it was a real low moment in his political judgment. And it was an act of desperation at a time when the war was going badly and soldiers were suffering and he personally was suffering. And as you said, Washington recognized who it was from because they corresponded regularly. And so he, Washington recognized the handwriting and told Patrick Henry about it. And they continued to have a professional relationship-ish, but Washington never forgot and did not ever really fully forgive Rush. And I think Rush probably knew that. He was an astute observer of character and he would have recognized the shift in their personal relationship. And he didn't ever really want that sort of bad feeling to be there because he hadn't really meant it. I mean, I think he kind of did in the moment, but again, it was it was a, a momentary indiscretion of passion as opposed to a conviction that Washington should actually be replaced. It's kind of like he should have taken Jefferson's advice when angry count to 10, when very angry count to 100. But this leads right into point number three, which is Russia's similarities with John Adams. Both had brilliant and feisty wives and prodigal sons and sons with challenges. And it would seem that they also sort of both spoke before they thought things through. Indeed. In fact, this is one of the qualities about Rush that I enjoyed reading about the most. He's a very human person. He's brilliant and ambitious, but he's flawed and accessible through those flaws. He um, had relationships with great passion, both romantic and friendly. I loved the correspondence between him and John Adams because as I you know, alluded to earlier, he often talked with Jefferson on intellectual subjects. And indeed, he, he talked with Adams about those as well. But their personal relationship seemed like it was so special and very sweet. And they did share these wonderful things. Not too many men at the time had well-educated wives who served as their their sort of centering place. They had these sons that they were incredibly proud of. They had sons that they really struggled with. And I love that those things bring them together. And no, no question about that. I think I'm trying to formulate this. He's, he's in a sense, the father of American psychiatry. He's interested in the, in the mind. He doesn't understand the mind the way we do. But he does understand that there are things that we're not in contact with in our minds, and there are things that bedevil us, and that and there's mental frailty that that we're not just thinking machines, we're not just rational beings, that we're way more interesting, complex, and troubling than that. And I think that that made a lot of people trust him because he had he was a great listener, and he was able to he was able to sort of ponder human psychology. And I think that when he saw someone like Jefferson. He saw this incredible Renaissance man, but who was pretty self-protective. But when he saw John Adams, he saw this 
fragile, high-strung, tightly wound guy, and, and they shared a little of this, but I think he felt a deep kinship with Adams, and I think he also could appreciate that Adams was beset with these internal demons. I, I, so I, I, is that making any sense, Lindsay? I'm trying to suggest that his the lens he wore of being sort of the father of American psychiatry enabled him to see something that Jefferson wouldn't see because Jefferson didn't have the capacity to empathize in that way. I completely agree. And I love how you put that because I think as, as you described Jefferson protecting himself, he also didn't really want to see that in other people because he felt that it should be private and those things should be worked through maybe within your family, but probably within yourself and maybe in, you know, commune with nature. Whereas because Adams did wear these things on his sleeve, it made him much more accessible to the type of deep, loyal friendship, which he did have with people because he felt more emotion, what we would call emotionally available. Yeah, I, I agreed. And I think that they have, of course, he and Adams have regional similarities, um, mm -hmm. which, which is an important thing. Um, you know, they have a concept of sin. And I, I should say this before we lose it. You know, of the three, Adams, Jefferson, Rush, Rush is the most serious Christian. And yes. he, I mean, he, he, in fact, in a way that I think Jefferson would have found a little off-putting. So they didn't really discuss this very much. But, you know, he famously said, I've been accused of being an aristocrat and a Democrat. I am neither. I'm a Christocrat. And he says a whole range of times that we can't possibly make a republic work unless there is strong, organized Christianity at its center. That that a mother's greatest duty to her children is to inculcate them with Christian values. He said that, that secular um, uh, substitutes for this don't work, that religion is central to the human project, to human happiness and order, and, and Christianity is the religion that he um, espouses. Jefferson would have had a hard time with that. Adams would have understood it, but, but Adams was a little, I think, more skeptical than that. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think, you know, he, yes, absolutely, Clay, he was a very devout Christian and from time to time grappled with what was the best way to experience that and, and sometimes switch churches, but, but felt that it was a central part of his life. And yet at the same time was an early advocate for separation of church and state, recognizing that one church might not be the right church for everyone, which is a complex notion. I do think his his forward thinkingness about the importance of you know abolishing slavery, which he he was a, a vocal advocate for, the importance of education for both women and people of color, and the possibility of that education lifting people out of poverty or or more subdued positions. Um, of course, his his position on women in general and the importance of you know having a, a more partner type of spouse than a subordinate. And then, of course, the work you mentioned with his sort of 18th century psychiatry, he he was truly, in some ways, and I know we're going to get to some of the areas of medicine where I grapple with a little bit more and, and struggle, but when it comes to his ideas about mental health and addiction, he was so far ahead of his time, recognizing that compassion and calmness and appropriate conditions were the appropriate way to try and help treat these conditions, believing firmly that alcoholism was actually an addiction as opposed to a personal weakness. 
And there are so many times, I'm curious if you've had this experience, Clay, when you're reading about people in the 18th century, and even frankly in the 19th century too, and a family member like Charles Adams, John Adams' son, is, is going through horrible addiction. And you know that it runs in the family and has for generations, and you can just see it coming, and you wish desperately that if they could have had a little bit of help from our 21st century knowledge, how might that life have gone differently? And Rush was the first one to try and make that shift. Now, he, of course, didn't have our understanding, but he was the first one to take that step. No, definitely. And you think of, I mean, Jefferson um, had a son-in-law, Thomas Mann Randolph, who had serious anger issues, tremendous self-doubt and self-destructiveness. Um, alcohol was a factor. And Jefferson shows a deep, deep, deep patience with all of this, but not a lot of understanding because here's the problem with Jefferson. One of the problems with Jefferson, he believed everyone could be little Jefferson, that the, the Lindsay, you could be a little Jefferson. I could be a little Jefferson that if we would just get more rational and get more busy and do more and get more organized and, and never waste a single moment. Um, and, you know, clear our prose of, um, unnecessary adverbs that we all could be little Jeffersons. And he couldn't understand that most people, are just way more complicated than that. And I think that if Rush had ever gotten Jefferson on the couch, and to even posit that's an impossibility, <laughs> but if he could have gotten Jefferson on the couch, uh, he, he, he was a kind of person who would crust over the things he didn't want to look at and wall them off from himself and then go do something, go count something, go write something, go measure something, go devise or invent something. But he never wanted to say, what is it? What is it that I am feeling about myself and my relationships? And and Rush really is kind of the guy who could who who might have been able to help Jefferson through that. But Jefferson was never gonna never gonna lie down on that couch. That's so right. There are so many times when I'm reading about characters, and, and Jefferson is a great example because Lord knows he can compartmentalize better than anyone I've ever really read about. But just, I always wonder, I'm like, oh, if you could just have some therapy, just a little bit of therapy, it'd be so helpful for you. <laughs> and um, yes, Rush was the Rush, Rush was the first one to really th think that through and um, or at least the first one that we really know about. And, you know, that hit, because he personally suffered from a family member who really struggled with these issues. And, you know, obviously, as we've discussed, Adams did too. That was at the heart of one of their connections. I'm curious what you think actually is, sorry to take us on a tangent, but his son, who had a, a series of issues, has anyone posited what it actually was that caused? I mean, it, you know, in the case of Charles Adams, it's clearly an addiction to alcohol. In the case of John Rush, it's not really clear to me what was going on. I don't think we know. I, you know, my own surmise is that he was a depressive person. I have never seen um, addiction as part of that. I think he was mentally fragile, maybe mentally ill. And I think that that's really important to an understanding of Rush because he accepted his son, whereas Adams didn't. Adams, you know, the, the, the demise of Charles Adams just bewildered poor John Adams. He finally just had to wash his hands of it and turn away in deep sorrow. But he he didn't he had no mechanism to try to help him. But I think Rush saw in his son what can go wrong in a human personality, and he realized that this has to be humane. It has to be patient. It has to be understanding. It has to be 
you don't, you can't solve this problem. You can only assuage these things. And I think that that makes him a, a much more um, sympathetic character than either Adams or Jefferson, because Adams is irascible and Jefferson is distant. But I think Rush, we gained we gained as a people because Rush had a troubled son, because he then extrapolated from that into the problems of the human personality. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour this week, 10 Things About Benjamin Rush with Dr. Lindsay Trevinsky and Clay Jenkinson. And uh, we have 10 things, a list in front of me submitted by the two of you. And you've been talking about Jefferson, which leads us right into point number five, which is the correspondence between Rush and Thomas Jefferson on science. Uh, So... Um, I'm just going to say a, a sentence, and then I, I'm really eager to hear what Lindsay has to say about this. But, you know, we choose our friendships, and and we have a we have a line of communication with different people for different purposes. So with John Adams, the relationship is more intimate, more, I think, emotionally satisfying for Rush. They're real friends. Um, they commiserate the world together in some ways. With Jefferson, it's all kind of on the Jeffersonian plane of the life of the mind, rationality, curiosity, looking at the world, exploring the the nature of Christianity, the nature of of human moral behavior. And so it's more abstract with Jefferson. And I think if you look at the correspondence when when Rush was trying to bring Jefferson and, and Adams back into their friendship, he has to be so careful with Jefferson. But he can tease Adams. He can have fun trying to talk Adams into writing to Jefferson. But he would never dare try to have fun with Jefferson. You can't tease Jefferson. You have to. Jefferson has made it clear to the world that the way you address him is to talk about ideas that have no fallout into human personal matters. And part of that's Jefferson's deep commitment to privacy. But part of it is just his style. And I think Rush understood you can address George Washington in one way and John Adams in a completely different way. And Jefferson, you have to keep that on an intellectual plane. Is that your reading, Lindsay? Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. I think that Jefferson is the friendship of the mind and Adams is the friendship of the heart. And that makes for a very fascinating correspondence. They had a lot to discuss in terms of science and intellectual ideas. Politically, they were pretty well aligned so they could talk about the importance of republicanism. Of course, this is little r republicanism and virtue in that way. And at times complain about the excesses of the Federalist Party and and Adams. But there is a, um, do you get a sense when you read their correspondence that there's almost a, a, not a lack of warmth because they obviously shared a, a very, robust set of ideas, but just a lack of closeness. I think that's true in all of Jefferson's correspondence, even with Madison. I mean, they're best friends. I mean, they are truly like the two pillars of the emerging small R Republican party and they're best friends. And they, they agree on almost everything except in tactics. And yet Jefferson is quite stiff. And so is Madison. I mean, I I just think this is the, this is the, the vibe that Jefferson gave out. You want to know me? Don't probe my heart. You want to know me? Don't raise certain questions about, say, 
race or slavery. Uh, you want to know me? Um, consult the encyclopedia so that we have something we can talk about that's safe. And I mean, I know we're being a little bit hard on Jefferson here, but I think it's true. And But I want to say this. If Jefferson had been better adjusted, he might be less of a man of achievement. I mean, his in some sense, his achievement is compensatory, and we are the beneficiaries of that compensatory achievement that he, by, by walling off the stuff that keeps us up at night, wrestling with ourselves and agonizing, Jefferson just closed off and said, I'm going to direct all the rest of me towards achieving stuff. And my goodness, did he achieve in that way? I think if he'd been on the couch, you know, he, he might have found a second wife and had a successful <laughs> private life and given up on, you know, calendar clocks and magic doors. No, that's so true. And it's such a good point because so many of those explorations were, I think, intentionally distractions. Question, how much of this do you think is a, you know, you mentioned that Madison was a little bit stiff too, and Washington was as well. How much of this is a Southern cultural element compared to mid-Atlantic or Northern? I mean, of course, there are Southerners that are warmer, but it does seem to me that there's a little bit of, there starts to be a parallel there. Interesting. I haven't really, I don't know how to talk about that because they're different. So Jefferson's stiffness can be directly tied to his reading in Stoic philosophy, that, or, or at least he found that very congenial, that you, you try to keep an even keel, you, you don't let anything exhilarate you, and you don't let anything grieve you and that the the good life is where you are you manage to control with a with a great equanimity all of your responses and there's a famous story when when daniel webster was visiting jefferson and his dam had washed out and, and someone whispered this in jefferson's ear and jefferson said oh no problem and it's like thirty thousand dollar loss but webster said are you what's wrong with this guy i mean he just had a uh, he had a financial catastrophe and he just says more tea would you like a bit of toast so this is Jefferson, whereas with Washington, it's more the pose of Cincinnati. It's the hero. I don't think Jefferson ever thought of himself as a hero, but I think Washington certainly thought of himself as a hero. We need to take a short break from this conversation. When we come back, we're going to move on to point number six, which I'm quite curious about. Turns out that uh, Benjamin Rush was a book burner, or at least once he was. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. It's our 10 Things series with Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky, and today it's 10 Things about Dr. Benjamin Rush. And toward, toward the end there, when I was talking about Jefferson, I saw a little, and we're doing this by Zoom, I saw a little snark there. You were you were rejecting something there about Jefferson. What was it? Uh, I was I was chuckling to myself at your suggestion that Jefferson didn't see himself as a hero. Um, now he certainly did not see himself as a Cincinnatus type hero like Washington did, but I do think he had a pretty sizable ego about his own intellectual contributions. Now he didn't necessarily posture it the same way as Washington did. You know he was pretty humble in terms of his gravestone, but there's no doubt that he, I think, thought he played a pretty heroic role in some of these things. You can't really, you know, describe your inauguration as the Revolution of 1800 if you're not pretty impressed. It was just the people. The people rose up. But but <laughs> let me ask you this question about it then. So, you know, I there are I know people in my life who have the the narcissism of humility. Do you see that in Jefferson? I mean, he was always saying, if I had never lived, these things would have happened, and this was my modest little contribution, and so on. Do you think that that's um, a very strong sense of his greatness, which allows him to play down that very greatness? Yes, I do. I mean, it's not to say that he doesn't have humility, because even though he compartmentalizes, I think that he knows that he compartmentalizes, and so he does have a sense deep down, or he did have a sense deep down of of the weaknesses, even if he didn't really want to think about them and ponder them and spend time emotionally with them. So he wasn't actually a narcissist. But I do believe that a lot of that humility is posture as opposed to actual emotional commitment to that position. Yeah, this is where you would say nonsense. We'll have to disagree on this one. I think Jefferson (laughs) had his ego under control almost more than any individual I've ever encountered but we'll save that for another debate. Yes, I'm so glad that you've decided to keep things civil. Uh, we have a number left, so let's keep moving here. And and as I talked about in the last segment, your point number six, Lindsay, about burning a book. I'm so glad you brought this up because it's an interesting story. And uh, it really started in 1805 in February when Rush wrote to Adams, saying, Dear Sir, it seemeth unto me that you and I ought not to die without saying goodbye or bidding each other adieu. Yes. So as I said to begin with, Rush knew everyone and knew too much about everyone. And partly that was because of his personality and partly it was his positions and his location in Philadelphia was very helpful because so much of the historic events that we're talking about come through this space. And as his life went on, he started writing this history of the revolution and these descriptions of the major players. And you can just imagine how potentially infuriating or damaging or polarizing some of those descriptions might be. So, Clay, correct me if I have these details wrong, but towards the end of his life, he decided to burn it because he decided it was going to be too dangerous and too damaging and insults too many people uh, if he let it go forward. And then his family was also 
very meticulous about what papers they allowed out and, you know, burned some and kept some private. They, I mean, they all cultivated their archives in their own way. He, their, his family, and he was not alone in doing so. But there was a sense, a realization towards the end of his life that maybe he knew too much and it shouldn't really be allowed to see the light of day. It's sad because, of course, we would give anything to oh, have that yes. set of sketches. You know, I'm with Lindsay. And the founding fathers who are candid are so much more useful to us than the founding fathers like Jefferson who have candor issues. And so we love Adams because he everything Adams ever felt wound up being articulated and his papers are immense. They bury Jefferson's papers. And here's Rush who wrote this document that must have been so interesting that he had to burn it. But, Lindsay, I want to just digress here um, and go to current events for just a second and get your quick response. You know, I heard a piece on NPR this weekend about banning books, burning books. This We're entering a very, very, very dangerous little era here in American history where books are being removed from library shelves for a range of reasons, but particularly if they if they can be seen by a very narrow mind as uh, apologizing for America. Uh, how concerned are you about this issue? Well, I think as a historian, it's impossible not to be concerned about it. The point of education is to expose you to new ideas and to challenge your mind to grapple with difficult things. And the point of schooling is to introduce you to things that are sometimes hard to understand. That's the whole point of learning. So to, to suggest that somehow education shouldn't incorporate ideas that are different or potentially subversive or potentially challenging is in the face of everything education is supposed to be. I think it's also, you know, if anyone was to say to you, oh, you shouldn't read this book, my first question would be why? Because if someone doesn't want you to read something, that's going to say a whole lot more about them than it's going to say about you. And the final piece that I would say is, you know, obviously a lot of these books have to do with race, have to do with slavery, have to do with potential, quote unquote, discomfort for students. So what about what about the stories of the people you're silencing? How, if you remove stories about slavery and race, what does that do to Black children, when they can't see their history in books, how, what about their discomfort? What about students who identify as LGBTQ and they're only told that straight couples are allowed to marry or those stories are familiar to them? What does that do to their discomfort? And so, you know, my response is why are only certain people's comfort prioritized over others? And, you know, as someone who embraces books and ideas, in the scope of history, only tyrants and authoritarians try and control the spread of information. And the worst of the worst are in that category. And why anyone would want to be associated with that is hard for me to understand. And our man Jefferson said, the truth is great and will prevail when left to itself. You know, in a fair fight, he's dating himself um, back to Milton's Areopagitica and other 17th and 18th century tracts. But Jefferson is the greatest exponent in early American history of the unlimited scope of the human mind. And I think this is a very dangerous moment we're in here. And I hope that um, we, we calm down. Yeah, agreed. Well, to finish off the story of Benjamin Rush destroying his notes, he wrote to Adam saying, 
perceiving how widely I should differ from the historians of that event and how much I should offend by telling the truth, I threw my documents into the fire. Adams responded, I am extremely sorry you relinquished your design of writing memoirs of the American Revolution. The burning of your documents was, let me tell you, a very rash action and by no means justifiable upon good principles. And Adams may have changed his mind if Russia had published that. <laughs> good point. No, but he could be such a good scold. He was such a good scold. Let's move on to number seven, which is the yellow fever outbreak of oh, here it comes. This is, you know, this is why we're here, because when we brought this up, Lindsay was all, went into this bright <laughs> smile that she was going to have her chance to really assault Benjamin Rush as a physician. So have at it. So I should say, in fairness to Rush, the more I read about him, the more I admire the capacities of his mind. So I am willing to admit that I was short-sighted and that I have learned a great deal about him and enjoyed that process. Wow. Um, You sure you want to go that far? Yes, because he was not willing to have the same open-mindedness when it comes to yellow fever. So it's a very important transition. Nobody worked harder in the yellow fever epidemic than he did. He exhausted himself. I totally agree with you. He endangered himself in ways that no modern physician would, but go ahead. That's true. His commitment cannot be denied. However, his, at this point, his partisan spirit got in the way of the sort of rational scientific thinking that we would expect medical professionals to employ. He advocated for a very severe course of bloodletting as one of the treatments. And when other more mild treatments like hydration proved to be effective, he either said that the case was not actually yellow fever, as in the case of Alexander Hamilton, or dismissed that evidence as not being appropriate. And that was because he was not the only one, but that was because of the political nature of the disease and the political nature of the different cures that were offered. So he was certainly not the only person to, you know, fall prey to this partisan nature of this disease. But I do think it is a, um, it it demonstrates that he was not always capable of keeping an open mind. The second thing that I think is important for us to acknowledge, and he did acknowledge he was wrong in this way, but it is nonetheless evidence that has to come forward. He initially said that African-Americans were immune to yellow fever. And and some who had come from places like New Orleans or the South or Africa did indeed have immunization that they had gained through national natural methods, but not all. And so he begged and encouraged the Black community to participate in the healthcare process. And once he realized that indeed that that thought that he had had was wrong, that African-Americans did not naturally have an immunization because of the color of their skin, he felt quite badly about the deadly implications of of that, you know, misconclusion. But nonetheless, it did lead to the death, the horrific death of many, 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 many African-Americans who also very bravely tried to take care of sick people and try and remove bodies to prevent the spread of disease. So I just think it's a little bit of a more nuanced picture than he was just the hero of the 1793 yellow fever epidemic. He's an abolitionist. He's an outspoken abolitionist. And yet he 
somehow came to believe that African-Americans were immune to yellow fever and therefore they would be ideal to serve as nurses. There's a complacency in that. And when the evidence began to pile up that that just wasn't so, he made no effort to really go public with this. There's a heartlessness, I think, in, in saying, well, these black people, are, are they're immune to this disease. Let them do the grunt work of going into these pest houses and so on. And I, I find that uh, troubling. I also think that it points to that larger issue that we've been kind of hinting about. There's a stubbornness in him. Even when others showed that bleeding and purging were not particularly efficacious with respect to yellow fever, he shouted them down and insisted on his own methods. He 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 did not. He had a sense of his own righteousness, and he had a hard time letting go of his stubbornness when other facts came to light. I think I agree, especially when he was under duress. So we see this this stubbornness and these sometimes poor choices when his family's not with him, when he's not sleeping. I mean, he didn't. From all accounts, he didn't sleep a whole lot anyway. But especially when he's not sleeping. When he's dealing with outbreaks, all conditions that you know humans generally struggle with, and so he is very human in that way. But I think that is well put. There's a an intellectual stubbornness that is not necessarily borne out by the facts. And this may also reflect on his quarrel with George Washington that he he had he gave advice. He was the expert in the house. He expected that advice to be accepted immediately, and when and when he appeared not to be being taken seriously, he reacted with hostility rather than patience. Absolutely. Moving on to the next point, you've talked about how he endangered the black community, but he is noted as having strong anti-slavery views. And amazing that he and Jefferson could be friends. So many of Jefferson's Enlightenment friends were abolitionists, almost all of them. Jefferson is surrounded by men and women of the Enlightenment who believe that these principles extend way beyond white males to white females, to Native Americans, to Africans and African Americans, to indigenous people. And Jefferson never budged. In fact, he hardened on these questions in the course of his life. And yet his closest friends are abolitionists. And here's one of them. Well, and he he didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. He helped them Set, he helped the African-American community in Philadelphia set up schools for children and for recently emancipated enslaved individuals. He helped the Black community and supported the Black community in creating its own churches. He supported medicine for the African community. So this was not just a, a, a sense of, you know, words. It was, it was, you know, real action. Now, he did at one point own an enslaved individual that it seems like the, the life of this person is a little bit fuzzy about how Rush came to I hate to use the word acquire, but how Rush came to own this person. And and he did finally at some point emancipate him and it appeared that for a period of time. So there are moments where, you know, these actions are not perfect to be sure. We have enough time for our final point, And that is that Benjamin Rush was the man who brought Thomas Jefferson and John Adams back together and provided us with this incredible correspondence. I don't think they would have reconciled if it weren't for Rush. They were both bitter. Uh, they were really, and they were frightened of reaching out to the other one because they thought the other one was bitter. This was dangerous to try to re-enter this friendship after all that had passed between them. There was personal stuff. There was ideological stuff. There was public stuff. 
and there had been some really deep wounds and Rush made it a campaign to bring them back together and he worked at it for several years. If he had died earlier or if he had not been interested in this, I believe that these two great men, John Adams and Jefferson, would have died without further communication. I agree. And I would add two side notes to that. One is that there had already kind of been an attempt at a reconciliation and Abigail Adams had smacked that down. That was the, the 1804, when she, <laughs> when she really got the best of Jefferson. Oh, yeah. No, she she let him have it, which as a loyal wife, when if someone were to come after my husband in that way, I I, I understand and I sympathize her, her reaction. Um, so there had already been this attempt. So, you know, I think you're right that they had a lot of reason not to and a lot of reason to think it wasn't going to work. I would add one more glowing element to it, which is that in some ways, I think it's actually one of Rush's most important contributions to history. By bringing them back together, we get this incredible correspondence, which frankly, if you were to write it in a book, an editor would cut it out and say, this is too cheesy. Especially, you know, they die on the same day. I mean, it just, it's the type of thing you just can't make up. And if you tried, editors wouldn't let you. And so to bring them together to facilitate this relationship, the closing of this hostile chapter, um, the importance of the bookends of their relationship required unbelievable commitment, as you said, for years, but also a deftness and a nuance and an understanding about humanity and how the, the very two different types of humanity worked in this situation. And he, you know, played them like a fiddle. And, and, and I don't say that in a negative way. It was, it was a brilliant nuance. And so it's, a, it's one of his real contributions and one of the things I'm most grateful for. Thank you both um, for such an interesting conversation. And Lindsay, particularly, thank you for sharing your time. You just brought so much to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, and we really do appreciate it. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826 and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.